0: Want to welcome you this morning. My name's Tony. I have the, the privilege of being able to be, that sounds a little garbled, I think. Um, I have the privilege of being able to be on pastoral staff here at Wellspring. It's a real privilege and honor. And I just want to say, if you're uh, new visit and checking us out, we are glad you are here. I want to give a little shout out to Jackson on the soundboard, because this morning he walked in and we had no sound. So we had to like search the entire building to figure out where the, where the rat had chewed through the line or whatever. Um, And so thank you, Jackson, for your heroic efforts. And we will will try and get my sound a little bit, I don't know. Does it sound a little better yet? A little garbled, okay. Maybe it's just me. Um, One of the things we wanna do this morning as we start is You know, we live in a culture where we never really commit to things. I don't know if you guys have noticed that, but we live in a culture where people sort of, we just go from one thing to another, right? We talk about uh, Yobo, you know, uh, or that was the wrong way, FOBO. Uh, I combined YOLO and uh, whatever, Uh, acronym confusion on stage, Um, FOBO, fear of a better offer, right? So we always have our hands sort of open, like waiting for, maybe I'll get a better offer over here. So one of the things we like to do at Wellspring is actually prioritize and emphasize commitment. So what I wanna do is I wanna invite folks that are going to have chosen to become members in this place to come up and stand up here. And if you're also an elder and you're here, if you could come up, that would be great. Now I realize not everyone who's making this choice is here today. People are traveling and in and out, but I want to invite you up, if that's you, Uh, and maybe you can just fan out along the stairs. Facing this way. Yeah, there you go. Um, And then I should have asked this earlier. I'm going to steal mic five, Jackson. Um, And I'm sorry if you could just, if you're open, just say your name and uh, yeah, that'll work. Lynn Winterbotham? Yeah, focusing that way. There we go. <laughs> Elaine Hayes. Steve Hayes. Donna Yurkowski. Julie Dufoe. The Big Gap. There you go. There you go, Alex. Alex uh, Hayes. Susie O'Donnell. Keith Lewis. Jeremy Bullard. Kimber Harris. Peter Harris. Thank you, guys. Mostly just want to take a moment just to recognize that, I don't know, in a, in a culture of non commitment, we just want to sort of recognize the prophetic example of choosing to be a part of a local church in a local place for a season of time. And we just want to create a space just to have our elders pray for you guys, that this would be just an amazing experience of family and belonging and transformation for you. Uh, And I just invite you as the congregation to, if you feel comfortable, just extend a hand as a symbol of solidarity in this prayer, um, that you are also with them, and then Jesse is going to pray for you. thank you for the gift of community, uh, for the gift of growing our community. Uh, Holy Spirit, you promise to be in us and among us, uh, and we invoke your presence now as we welcome uh, these people into our fellowship for whatever season of time you have allotted for them. Uh, Help us to be welcoming to them, to be an encouragement to them. Help us be a season of flourishing uh, for however long this ends up being. Uh, Be near to us and give us every good gift needed for ministry uh, and healing. Uh, Thank you again for bringing these people into our congregation and into our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Give them a round of applause. Thanks. and thank you for taking the risk to walk up here. I know it's like always a little embarrassing standing in front, I do it every week. It's, it's quite a burden. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you are a kid and you wanna hang out with other kids, uh, whoa, they're like fighting over each other to go play, go, awesome. There we go, gonna hang out with some other kids. They are quickly moving towards the door. And if you're stuck with me, I'm sorry. The kids look like they're going to have way more fun. But, so we're in the midst of our journey through the Old Testament. We are slowly making our way through. We're in Judges. Aaron introduced the book last week. Uh, This week, we are uh, in week two, clearly. And um, so we're going to start going through different characters in the book of Judges. Now, an interesting thing, right? The book's written about 3,000 years ago, and yet it has a lot of parallels to our society and our cultural moment today, right? It's a time kind of like ours where the people of God face this daily choice between whether they were going to look to God to guide their steps or they were just going to kind of do their own thing, you'll see in the book of Judges, there's this repetition of this phrase, like they did what was right in their own eyes, right? As the contrast to whether or not they were doing what God invited them to do. Are they going to do what's right in their own eyes, or are they going to submit their lives to God as he guides and directs their steps? We also see in the book of Judges, and Aaron talked about this a lot last week, this sort of cyclical repetition The people do what's right in their own eyes. They end up getting in these gnarly situations. Often they're oppressed and they call out to God for help. God sounds a judge or deliverer and that judge or deliverer brings them into a time of peace. Cycle repeats, you know, throughout the book of Judges. It's important to remember though that most of these judges or deliverers that God sends are not really role models. Very few of them are really heroes or moral, moral characters that we are supposed to, like, say, I want to pattern my life after this person, almost, it, almost without exception. They're pretty broken, and they get especially broken towards the end when we get to the person of Samson in two or three weeks. With that said, there is maybe one judge in the entire book of Judges that is actually put out as a moral example or someone we should emulate. And that person is Deborah. The story begins in chapter 4. The text says the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, right? And this is the pattern. There's a time of restoration followed by a time of evil. And in that time of evil, often what happens is the people cry out to God for help. And this is exactly what happens, verse 3. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he, Sisera, we'll get to him in a minute, had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. This isn't just like, a day, 20 years, that's two decades, long time. What we know historically, there's this guy named Jabin who's the king of Canaan and basically he gives Sisera all this power to enforce his will and he has 900 chariots of iron. Now, for us, we think a chariot, like we have tanks, like what's a chariot? But like a chariot of iron at that time is like, that The, the cutting-edge military technology just released out of R&D, like, this is what you want. Right? Chariots versus people. Chariots would mow people over like a lawnmower over grass. Just gnarly, gnarly stuff. And it's in this context of Sisera and oppressing with his chariots that were introduced to Deborah, verse four. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, who was judging, was judging Israel at that time, she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel and the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came to her for judgment. Now a few things I think we need to emphasize. One, says she's a prophetess. Now this doesn't mean that she just predicts the future. Sometimes we think of this when we think of a prophet, like a prophet is someone who knows what's going to happen. And that is part of what prophets do. But really what this means is that she declares what is true of God to the people of God. So she teaches the word of God so that the people are faithful to God. And she does this in Israel. Second, the text says that she was judging Israel. And this means, and I think specifically for Deborah, she actually did preside over a courtroom of sorts. So when two parties had a dispute, they would actually go to Deborah because she was wise and discerning, and they would sit under her palm tree, right? And she would actually exact judgments for the people of Israel in social, legal, and relational cases. And her, her decision was actually binding for the parties, Now it's important to recognize that this is actually kind of a big deal, right? Like this is a particularly patriarchal culture. So to have a woman who people are bringing their cases to means that she is like legit. Like you don't bring your cases 3,000 years ago to a female judge unless this judge is like unbelievably wiser than every other male out there, right? That's just like Contextually, historically, like she had to rock it. But I think we should also recognize in the biblical story, right, if you go back to Genesis 1, it says that God creates men and women in his image. And then immediately after, he gives over to his image bearers the sort of rule of creation. Hey, you guys, you're in charge now. And he doesn't say, oh, and just so you know, you know, re-read read, read Genesis 1. He doesn't then say, hey, and if you're a woman, your role is to say, yes, sir, whatever you want. They both are created in the image of God, and then they are both invited to rule. So it's not totally out of nowhere that Deborah would be a judge, right? If women can rule, co-rule, be representatives of God's kingdom on earth, surely she can oversee some legal disputes. But with that said, she's living in a very fallen time, much like ours, when people are not always fair or right, when skill and wisdom is not always elevated, and yet, at this time, people come to Deborah for her wisdom. It's also important to note that as the book of Judges unfolds, Deborah's pretty unique, not only because she is a woman, uh, but because she actually leads from a place of wisdom and character rather than sheer power and might. Like if you contrast her with Samson, it's like unbelievably clear. What Samson brings to the table is power and strength. What Deborah brings to the table is wisdom and character that people trust. And it's actually in her wisdom that she knows something needs to be done about Sisera's oppression of Israel. This is how the story unfolds. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam in Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw Sisera the general Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. One of the things that's really interesting about this story, it's one of the few times in the book of Judges that a character actually looks towards partnering and sharing responsibility with another individual. Right, so Deborah, she sees Sisera, she sees what he is doing, the cruel way he's treating the people. And rather than just rush into battle like Braveheart, getting everyone behind her, she first builds an alliance. She reaches out to Barak. Let's work together, Brock. You get the men, all draw out Sisera. And in, Barak, in response, Barak says to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out, called out Nebulun and the Nephtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels and Deborah went up with him. Now there's two things to be just emphasized right here. Now, Because you can really read this interaction in a couple different ways. One is the more pessimistic. One pessimistic way of reading this text is to say, Man, Barack just lacked faith. You know, he's like, I'm not going to go up unless you go, Deborah. Uh, You're the wise leader and counselor. You know, I can't go. And then you can read her response as a rebuke to him. Because you were faithless, you're not getting the glory, Barack. It's going to go to someone else. That's the pessimistic reading of this text. A more optimistic reading of this text is to say something like, Barak hears Deborah's words, and it's not really out of a lack of faith that he says, unless you go, I'm not going, but actually as a way of honoring her obvious wisdom and leadership. And He's like, in a culture that really focuses on honor, he's like, man, you are the wisest among us. I need you to come with me. Right? And then her response to him isn't a rebuke to him, but a way of saying, as a prophet, right? she is a prophet, she is saying to him, what is going to happen? Not a rebuke for his lack of faith. Simply that you're not going to get the glory through this, Brock, just so you know. Now, there's a couple ways to read it. I lean towards the more optimistic way. Both are textually possible. Now, though, Sisera gets wind of this, verse 12. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abdamoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Herosheth to Hagoyim to the river Kishon. Right, so Sisera hears about Barak, he's going up to Mount Tabor, he has all these people, so now he starts to rally his guys and his chariots, right, his lawnmowers, and you know, immediately... Chariots versus people, chariots win always. And yet, verse 14, Deborah says to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. It's important just to say, right, Deborah and Barak know the odds. It's not like they're like, oh, we got this. Like, no, 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 we have awesome swords. Or we have amazing wisdom. Right? No military counselor in the world is going to think this. Instead, right, Deborah is a prophet. Her life is grounded in God's truth, faithfully obeying his commands, So, when God says that they are going to win the battle, right, she listens. And then she tells the brock, right, to go down to the river against all impossible odds because the Lord has given Sisera into their hands. Verse 14, the Lord goes out before you. Right, it's not just a battle of chariots versus men, it's about chariots versus God. And Barack's also really faithful, right? He trusts Deborah. He trusts her listening ear, which is attuned to God. And he knows, he goes into this, he risks his life knowing that he is not going to get any glory. No one is going to sing songs about him. No one is going to be like, man, Barack, you're the best. And he's like, no, 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 you're the best. They're like, no, you're the best. No one's going to do that with him. He knows he is going into a battle like David versus Goliath. There is no chance for them to win unless God goes before them. But he still goes. This is how the battle unfolds. And the Lord routed Sisera in all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Haroseth, Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Notice the language, right? It's not Barak or Deborah who win the battle, right? It's God. Just as God defeats Pharaoh, not Moses, right? It's God who defeats Sisera, not Barak, not Deborah. And again, the author's trying to tell us this story is not a story about human heroes. This is about the faithfulness of God, hearing the cries of his oppressed people. Right? And actually interesting, right? just as Deborah prophesied earlier, Sisera flees on foot. He hides in the tent of a woman named Jael. And after giving him something to drink, he goes to take a nap. She grabs a tent peg and puts it through his head. You know you've thought about it. <laughs> there are a few times in the Scriptures when a biblical narrative is followed by a song. It doesn't happen all that often. It happens at Exodus 14 and 15. The people of Israel cross over the Red Sea and then they erupt in song at God's faithfulness. And the same thing happens here. There's a few things. We won't be able to get into all of it. I want to highlight three things. First, there's this focus on God leading his people. Right, so Deborah's singing the song, and she says in verse 4 or 5, The Lord, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. And there's this focus in the song and this sense of worship that God was with his people. Remember, the lawnmower and grass, but God fights for the people. Second, within this song and God's obvious centrality, there's this recognition of Israel's faithfulness too. Verse 2, that the leaders took the lead in Israel. That the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Right? Chapter 5 verse 9. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Yeah, God does all the heavy lifting. Yeah, God wins the battle. But the song doesn't take for granted that the people of Israel also partnered with God in the process. Right, what made this moment so pivotal for Israel was that Deborah and Barak and the people of God partnered with God as God accomplished his purposes in the world. The third thing I just want to sort of throw out there, it's also worth noting that a large chunk of this song, this worship song, is actually about women. So it's sung by Deborah, but it also emphasizes a number of different characters, J.L. And then there's also this interesting part of this song where Deborah is imagining Sisera's mother and the ladies-in-waiting, waiting for Sisera to return back from battle. And there she's imagining them talking among themselves Because there's this idea that one of the things that Sisera did after he conquered people, and this is a little more on the disturbing side, he would actually take some of the women or the girls from that space and he would basically traffic them and then use them for his desire. And so there's this section of the song where it's possible that they're talking about, I wonder if this is what Sisera is doing now, why he's delayed in coming Home. And so it's not without irony that Deborah is leading the charge and JL, a woman, ends up killing him. That the women are the primary actors in stopping this guy who has no respect for the women in the world. And it's why, actually, in this poem, I think JL is highlighted. So much towards the end of the song in verse 24. Most blessed of women is jail. Right? Because through her tent peg, she ends Sisera's oppression, specifically of how that affected the women in Israel. Welcome to Judges. It's a heavy book, but it's got some really beautiful things that I think actually translate into our life together too. Though it was written 3,000 years ago, there's some really relevant themes. I want to hit three, how they sort of focus on or can hit on the ground of our everyday life. The first is this. One, I just think often in church, we hear a lot of stories about men. We're often hearing about these male figures in salvation history, and that's fine. But I think it's important to recognize that at least half of the people in this room are not men. (laughs) And I think it's really important to just say that Deborah is this amazing example of a woman leading in power and wisdom and faithfulness and courage. Courage. And if you'll read the scriptures, you'll see that she's certainly not the only woman who makes a significant contribution in the history and story of Israel. She's not the only woman that God partners with to bring about his purposes in the world. Miriam, Moses' sister, was also a prophet and a worship leader. Huldah, who you probably haven't heard of, was a prophet just before exile. What I love about Huldah is that King Josiah has just discovered the book of the law. And he's trying to figure out what to do with it. So he calls for a prophet. But there are other male prophets at the time. Jeremiah's around, Zephaniah's around. He doesn't call for them. He calls for Huldah, who is a female prophet, to help him understand, what do we do with this? This law, these scriptures that we lost and now found. And she ends up playing this key part in actually the revival that happens under King Josiah's reign. And this doesn't even begin to scratch the role that women play in the scriptures. Esther, Ruth, Rachel, Rebecca, Sarah. Right? And sometimes I think we think, oh, but Deborah's in the Old Testament. Right? Right? She's a prophet in the Old Testament, okay. But if you fast forward to the New Testament, there are female prophets there too. This is the first sermon. So you go into Acts, Peter gives a sermon. This is literally the first sermon that happens in church. (laughs) Whatever, I don't know, that's the wrong way to say it because they're not in a church. But this is the first sermon that is delivered, that is recorded, right? After Jesus' resurrection, after his ascension, Peter at Pentecost quotes Joel 2, 28-32 saying, your sons and your daughters in the church as we move forward in this epic of salvation history will prophesy, right? Peter is saying just as men will speak on God's behalf, so will women. The first sermon ever delivered, right, in this season of church history that we live says that women like Deborah, will be prophets declaring God's word. this is what happens, right? Philips, four daughters, become prophets, right? This is mentioned twice in Acts, the beginning and towards the end. 1 Corinthians 11, you have female prophets that are talking in the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul doesn't say anything to stop them. 1 Corinthians 11. Moreover, when you dive in further, you see that women fill all kinds of roles in the church using their gifts to serve the body. Phoebe is a deacon at the Church of Corinth. And deacon is not some lowly title, right? This is the title that Paul most often uses of himself. Now, I know there's lots of smart people who have different opinions about how exactly these scriptures are supposed to take shape in a church setting. Grant that there are smart people that have very different opinions about this. And if you want a more in-depth discussion about sort of our church and where we come from, we did five or six sermons and some cutting room floors on women and ministry. And we'll make those available if you want sort of more in-depth on that. But with that said, I just want to say there are almost no modern scholars of any repute that do not think that women are supposed to use their gifts in the church to serve God's body and extend his kingdom outside church walls. Almost none. And here at Wellspring, I want to emphasize that if you are a woman, we want to encourage you to use your gifts that God has given you in the church and on behalf of his kingdom. And men, I just want to say to you, this isn't an opportunity for you to check out. Like, oh, Tony's just talking to the women. And I want to say this really clearly Because how men treat women in this space has profound ramifications for whether women feel safe and comfortable using their gifts in the church to extend His kingdom. I can tell you, I have heard, I have met with so many women who have come in and felt like because of the ways that men had responded to them in church settings, They didn't know if it was safe or even appropriate for them to use the gifts and skills that God had given them to use in the world. How we treat our sisters matters. I want to say to you guys, I want you this week, take take a woman who is in your life and encourage them. Pull them aside and say, you know, this is what I see in you. And I think God wants to call it out more and more. And if you are a father or a grandfather, I really encourage you this week, pull your daughter or your granddaughter aside and ask if you could just pray a blessing over them. I don't think we can overestimate the power of a father figure or a grandfather pulling aside a daughter or a granddaughter and saying, God wants to set you free to use the gifts he has given you in his kingdom and in the world, and I see it in you. I bet if we did a survey right now, I bet you most of the women in this world were not told that as girls or as they grew up. Imagine the power of a whole generation of women that felt like, man, Jesus wants me to use all of who I am in the world. As men, we have the power to make that possible. Let us use the power we have to encourage the women in our life that they, like Deborah, can use their gifts in the midst of God's story. The second thing I want to emphasize, um, so you have sort of the female side, but I also want to say like what's really clear in the story of Deborah is how we are all invited to use our gifts that God has given us to serve in the church and extend God's kingdom in the world. Imagine what it hap- would have happened, right, if Deborah discounted herself. I'm not that wise. I'm not not that a military leader. No one's going to listen to me. What if she had hung back in the shadows? What would have happened if she hadn't taken the risk to trust God and use her gifts? How easy as a woman in that culture it would have been to shrink back, and yet she didn't. Instead, she took this incredible risk to be faithful, to use the gifts that God had given her. She takes the risk to partner with God to accomplish His purposes in the world. And the truth is, this is exactly how God designed the church to function. Read the Bible. There is never... A time when you are issued a command to say, Your only role is to sit in a pew, sing some songs, and listen to a sermon. You will never see it. And yet, that's often the default assumption of church participation. There is no page of the scriptures, except for maybe one, when God does not involve human beings in accomplishing his purposes. And that's page one, before human beings are made, days one through five. Read the scriptures. Every other page involves human participation in God's plan in one way or another. Either humans are involved in it, or God is inviting them into it, or he's doing something to rescue them and inviting them to be a part of that process. God does the heavy lifting, absolutely. Yes, we are called to trust God, absolutely. But more often than not, we have a role to play. Applied to us, I am 100% certain that every single human being in this room who wants to be a part of Jesus' kingdom and is devoted to Jesus is invited to use, you are invited to use your gifts to serve God's people and extend his kingdom. Every single person in this room was designed by God and given gifts to use. No exceptions. No matter how much you discount yourself, Jesus does not discount you. What would it look like for you to take the risk like Deborah to serve? What would it look like for you to use your time and your energy on behalf of God's kingdom? Sometimes I think we think that ancient people were just bored and had nothing else to do. Like you think Deborah didn't have other things she could do with her time other than sit under a palm tree and lead a like rebellion? Of course she did. You don't think she had other things to distract her? Of course she did. That is the nature of human experience. We make choices. We either do what is right in our own eyes or we listen to the Spirit's invitation and we follow His guidance. My mom shared a story with me the other day. It was pretty funny. Um, About the first time I played soccer. Five years old. You know what soccer in five-year-olds looks like. You probably have an image. It's like a swarm of bees It's like, no idea of spacing, you know, it's just like, but the goal of soccer is to score a goal, right? That's what you do. When you're five, you sort of get it. For me, this is my first time I've ever playing soccer, I'm a part of the hive, I'm like running, you know, trying to kick the ball, probably kicking other people, but I'm doing my best. All of a sudden, an ice cream truck swings by. (laughs) And my mom says, I'm like, ice cream? And they're all playing and I'm like, ice cream! And I just totally bail. (laughs) And I share this story because I did the same thing last week. No, I'm just, (laughs) but (laughs) I share this story because I actually think it's applicable to us. The church has a goal. We're meant to image God in the world. But so often we get distracted. We forget why God made us to partner with him in community to accomplish his purposes. The ice cream truck goes by and we just bail. We get distracted by all kinds of things in life. And I wonder if God has brought this sermon to us and this body in this season so that we can recognize, oh wait, wait, what was the point? Did we just get a ticket to heaven so that we can enjoy eternity 50 years from now? Or is he inviting us into partnering with him as he extends his kingdom now? God invites us to partner with him. So one of the things that's going to happen in a bit um, is we're going to create an opportunity for you guys to, to sign up, to partner, to do some things. And there's going to be a minute, you know, not not just yet, where people are going to hand out some clipboards, and during worship, we're going to pass these clipboards as a way of saying, what does it look like for you to participate? Not just so you can serve, but as an expression of your worship. So while the band is singing and we're led into worship, we're going to pass these clipboards as a way of saying, we were all designed to participate in God's kingdom. And I don't really care how you want to participate. You want to be a part of the welcome team? Awesome. You want to help with coffee in the morning? Awesome. You want to help with hospitality? You want to be a part of missions? Awesome. If you say, I don't want to be a part of any of those things, God has made me to do this, write that in. We'll figure it out. I had someone the other day say to me, I have a gift for organization. How can I help? And I was like, oh, I can use that. The cool thing is God has given all of us unique gifts, a unique constellation of gifts that if he has brought you into this place, there's a specific way that gift mix can hit the ground and be a great blessing in this place. So as a part of our expression of worship, we're gonna pass those around. If you're already signed up and doing five things, don't sign up for any more. (laughs) Don't steal the joy of other people as they get to partner with God. It's one of the really messed up things that happens in church. Ten people do everything. The other, you know, whatever, percentage, depend on those ten people to do everything. That doesn't work. It just burns out those ten people. And they get bitter and resentful. Let's not do that. But if we all do a little according to the gifts that God has given us, really cool stuff happens. All right, point three. You have sort of Deborah as a woman gifted, all of us gifted to contribute. And three, I just want to say Deborah listens and faithfully responds to God's word to her. She makes time to listen to God's voice. And you see this throughout the story. The reason Deborah people come to her and say, settle this dispute, is because she listens to God. Her character and her life have been shaped by God, so they're like, we see God in you. We trust you with this dispute that's wrecking our family or our business or whatever. Deborah listens to God, and that's why she has the courage to say, Brock, get the 10,000, we're going. Deborah listens to God, and that's why when the 900 chariots are at the river, she still says to Brock, we're going down. God is going to fight for us against impossible odds. What does that mean for us? I think as a baseline, it means we should be a people that are reading the Scriptures, which is God's word to us in written form so that we can remember what God has said. And we have space where we're listening to what does God have to say to us now through the Scriptures and in other ways. It means like, With times like this morning when clipboards are passing and you have this opportunity to participate, you don't just shut off and think of the to-do list that you got in 20 minutes. But you tune in in this moment and say, all right, God, I'm here. What is the invitation you have for me? My hands are open. Are we willing to do that? Because if Judges tells us anything, it tells us that when we do what is right in our own eyes, it does not go well. I want to invite the worship team up. And as, as they play, and as I pray, I just want you to uh, sort of enter into a space of worshipful listening What is God's invitation to you? And I will just tell you: if you're already doing ten things, God's invitation is, "Don't do any more." I think. But if you're not, just invite you to listen to what God's invitation to you might be. Remember, we're not here just uh, out of guilt like do stuff that we can check off a list. But our role is to respond with worship. And that's why we're doing this rather than after service, we're doing this during worship as a way of connecting in our minds and in our bodies that how when we offer our gifts to God's kingdom is an expression of our worship. Romans 12, 1, right? Offer your lives as a living sacrifice to God. So God, in this space, we just say, we love you. We thank you that you have made us human beings with gifts to offer. You've made us in your image. You have equipped and called us to be a part of your kingdom. And God, with open hands, we come into your presence saying, God, we want to partner with you in small ways and in big ways. We want to taste the joy of doing it your way. So God, open our minds and open our hearts. And maybe you're calling us to say hello to people as they enter this space on Sunday mornings as a way of expressing your kingdom hospitality to the stranger. Maybe you're calling us to serve kids or youth as a way of saying, God, you want to upend the generational breakdown that happens in judges where one generation stops passing on the wisdom and then all things just go terrible. By passing on and investing in kids and youth, God, we are passing on the wisdom of your kingdom. Maybe you're inviting some of us to serve in that way. Maybe you have a musical gift. Maybe you have a teaching gift. Maybe your heart just beats to see God's kingdom extended in the world and you wanna help us as a church lean into what does it look like to participate in the community, to serve the community. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you love painting or building repair or you have a really cool idea for something we could do. Holy Spirit, we just say, speak, invite, challenge us. And God, for the women in this place, we just pray that you would break the power of lies that have kept women in this space from using their gifts. Pray for healing and release. Pray for the girls in this church. Right now, that are in the kids' community, the youth, that they would experience a profound empowerment of your presence. God, we ask that you would come. And as we enter in worship, there are going to be people handing out these boards and clipboards, and I should invite you, take it serious, as an expression of your worship to God. Let's stand and worship Him.